0: People's Poetry Podcast with me, Jimmy Bowman. Hello and welcome to episode six of series five of People's Poetry Podcast. Thanks for joining me. It's another big one. Very excited about sitting down with this poet. This is the poetry podcast that follows me, Jimmy Bowman, an aspiring poet and teacher alike as I travel the UK talking to established poets as well as poets who have just taken their first steps into the world of poetry as I try to find out why it is we have just such a love affair with poetry in this country. This is a podcast aimed not just at those who already like poetry but those who've never really considered it before. I want to show you that there's something in the world of poetry written for you. Our featured poet for this episode is the incredible, the prolific Matt Abbott. Now again, Matt's a poet whose work I have followed for some time. So I was very excited to actually sit down and get to chat to him. And we had lots to talk about. We get stuck in to Matt's debut collection on Verve Poetry Press, Two Little Ducks and Selected Poems. We also dive headfirst into A Hurricane in My Head, Matt's children's poetry collection out on Bloomsbury. And we sit and tackle all the various themes within his poetry, political themes, Westminster politics, racism, Black Lives Matter, white privilege, Brexit, refugees in the Calais jungle. So as you can see, a broad range of topics, important conversation, very complex conversational topics, and we try to drill into those as best as we can and explore the complexities of them. Now what I love about this episode, Matt being a massive Leeds fan, still high on the success of Leeds promotion to the Premiership, begrudgingly I have to say well done, (laughs) no, well deserved, but he asked me could we do it in a Millwall pub, so that's where we went, we went to Birmingham, we sat down and recorded this in a great little boozer called the Ancient Foresters, as my beloved Blue Anchor has closed down. Anyway, enough rabbiting from me, here it is. So we sat in Deep South, Deep South, Bermondsey, uh, with Matt Abbott, who I have major career envy over, I have to say. You've done, done quite a bit. I mean, you know, you've had your own band, you had a record deal, you're a poet, you're an activist, you've got a spoken word label. Is there anything you can't do? Uh, I can't do most of that, to be honest. <laughs> I just try. Thank you for sitting down and uh, taking the time out to chat to us. Mate, my pleasure, my pleasure. So, we will talk about two little ducks uh, and selected poems which come out on Verb Poetry Press and we're gonna talk about A Hurricane In My Head as well, which is your kids collection on Bloomsbury. Oh, yeah. I mean that's amazing in itself but we'll talk about that. I'd like to start sort of your poetic journey as it were I guess so not, not the first time you started writing poetry, but can you sort of pinpoint or remember the first time you became aware of poetry? Um, yeah, so I
1: know this is very, very obvious, being a Northern man, but John Cooper Clarke was the first time that I consciously listened to poetry as an activity. I'd always been obsessed with lyrics and storytelling in lyrics. So from Eminem to like The Jam, The Streets, Arctic Monkeys, whatever. Yeah. And like even when I was like nine or 10, I was obsessed with lyrics, but I never even in a million years thought about poetry um and then when i was 17 18 i started going out and we had a brilliant live music scene where i'm from in wakefield at the time like arctic monkeys were just coming out you know it were all happening um and i got into a band called reverend and the makers who had that song
0: yeah 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 heavyweight champion of the world world. yeah yeah
1: yeah. and he used to do short bursts of poetry in between his songs sometimes And he told me about John Cooper Clarke and, like, Alex Turner was obsessed with Johnny Clarke and, and all this sort of stuff. So that was my first ever, oh, I'm listening to poetry. But, you know, to be honest, like, even for the next five, six years, when I've started writing and performing poetry, I still didn't really properly read it like I do now. So I got into Linton Quazy Johnson, um, but I was still just obsessed with lyrics and storytelling. I never really started consuming poetry properly until my mid-20s, which I think is partly because... At the time, there wasn't a lot of great stuff on YouTube. Obviously, there is now. Yeah. Um, but also, like, you know, poetry books, it's a tenner a pop, which is great value, but to properly get into poetry, you know, you need to invest effectively a few hundred quid. And it just wasn't something that was on my radar, and it wasn't something I naturally went to do. So now I do read a lot of poetry, uh, not because I'm rich, just because, like, you know, I, I'm marrying another poet, so we've combined bookshelves, and it's all right. Yeah. But, yeah, no, I was very slow to get into it, which I do regret, but you made th- up for it now. Well, I'm sort of proud of the fact that I came into it through such an alternative approach, as in, like, effectively f- entirely through music because I've always tried to write poetry that's not in that sort of, like, academic, pretentious vein. And, I've, you know, admittedly, it is a bit of inverse snobbery, but I do think that alternative uh, grassroots poetry, if that makes sense, like, it is important to pull, pull in different influences because, like, far more people are going to listen to... Paul Weller, than listen to, you know, Lord Byron, where I'm from. So
0: this this is where I fanboy you totally, right? But the one of the reasons I was mad excited to sit down and chat to you is because reading your work, but like listening to you in previous interviews and stuff, I've never really heard a poet. A lot of people say, oh yeah, lyrics and poetry, you know, it's very fluid. But for me, you've just said it. Paul Weller was the sort of first poet. Uh, or the first musician that i class classed as a bit of a poet and then sort of meticulously went through his lyrics. Yeah. Which is not cool to do in the world of music, <laughs> sit there and read the lyrics. But, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of um, that's entertainment. Two yeah. lovers kissing at the screen at midnight, oh. two lovers missing the tranquility of solitude. That's no, one of the best lines ever. About yeah, it. you know, and it, that was, I suppose, my route into being interest as well. So it's really refreshing to hear. Yeah, totally. Talk about that as well. So when did you make the transition to, to writing in your own sort of poetry? So it, was it because you, you were into the music scene? and?
1: Uh, yeah, basically, because of uh, John McClure from Reverend of the Makers and also John Cooper Clark, knowing that they used to get on stage before bands, mm. suddenly, because I used to go to this venue called Escobar in Wakefield, which is every Friday or Saturday night you could go and it, there'd be a great band. And like you didn't even need to know who were playing, you'd just turn up and you'd know everyone there and the band were always ace. And a couple of my mates were in bands, so I started writing poetry specifically to get on stage and start comparing the events. So say if there's like four bands on the bill, I'd get on stage four times, do a poem, and then introduce a band. Yeah. Because much of this sounds ridiculous, like I really wanted to be on stage. I'd always fantasised about being a front man, but I can't sing or play guitar, so it was never really possible. And suddenly I had this way of getting on stage so alright that is admittedly a bit of an attention seeking ploy but also what I loved is the accessibility of it so you could write a poem in the afternoon and perform it that night Um, and it doesn't always mean it's going to be good but I just love the fact that you know to write a song you've got to buy an instrument learn to play it learn to read and write music Mm. learn chords whatever whereas with a poem you can just get a notebook out and have a little rant and I really loved the the fact that it was something I could do straight away and I've always I've always loved creative writing like I always used to write short stories and when I were a kid, I wanted to be a journalist. Like, so I've always, I've always loved words. So it felt like something that I'd immediately be good at. Not in a cocky way, but do you know what I mean? It no, felt yeah, like yeah, something yeah. I could do.
0: Ooh, pre-recording, I was telling you about my my sort of voyage into journalism, as it were, and it lasted about five minutes because, <laughs> you know, growing up, I thought, yeah, that is what I want to do. Sort of write news stories and articles, but it was a lot different to, how I imagine. Yeah, yeah, you? yeah. So, your, your writing does uh, a lot of it, not all of it, but does centers sort of focus on particular themes. Yeah. Which are themes I certainly hold dear. When you started writing, were they always things you wrote about then, or has that been sort of a progressive change uh, as you got older?
1: Yeah, no, it's definitely been progressive. Like when I started, because I was doing it in a music venue with 200 pissed up indie fans yeah. who absolutely did not want to hear poetry. It was very fast paced in that John Cooper Clark style, but it tended to be quite smutty, not necessarily about sex, but about like getting beaten up or a weekend in Blackpool or, it was very sort of like, lively, like night out poetry, like funny, like self deprecating tales, sex and violence, that sort of like, it was very instant and it was meant to be funny. Like it was almost every single poem was meant to be funny. Yeah. Just because that was the only way I could get their attention. Um, and also, like, much as I was obsessed with politics, I found that it was only in my mid to late 20s that I could really start writing about politics in a way that, well, hopefully engaged people. Like, I think when you. Obviously, some people are different, like, when you listen to Bob Dylan's early stuff. Like, the way he talks about politics is absolutely phenomenal. Um, but for most of us human beings that aren't Bob Dylan, like, uh, it takes a lot longer to be able to articulate it in a way that's not just like. Preaching to the com- preaching to the choir, the like obvious rhyming Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I think you should always try and when writing about politics, I find very difficult. But I think you've got to try and communicate it on a human level rather than just repeating slogans and whatever. And you got to try and frame an, an argument or an issue in a way that people are going to maybe see it in a different way. Um, whereas when I was seventeen, eighteen, it was all like you know racism is bad. Go tell your dad. You know like, it was crap. So like, I'd stick to the smutty stuff because also um, getting on stage and doing poetry is absolutely terrifying and getting a laugh is the easiest way to know that you're doing all right yeah Um, and it was only when i did two little ducks at edinburgh in 2017 that i could perform a poem and not have anybody laugh or clap and and feel all right Um, so much to my regret when i first performed two little ducks in edinburgh in 2017 it was a different version to what i took on tour and what's in that book and um, basically there'd be like a funny slash silly poem and then Brexit, Calais Maria, Brexit, Calais Maria. Like, and basically all the funny, silly, smutty ones like having sex in a tent at a festival were in the show as well. Right. Because for me to do an hour, I couldn't get through that hour without having that like, moment of relief and that yeah, laughter yeah, yeah. and that old school. And by the end of a month, because obviously at Edinburgh you do a solid month, by the end of it I was cringing when I was doing those poems, whereas at the start they were like my safety net. Right. And it was only through doing that of the period of a month that now, obviously, when I do two little ducks in theatres, nobody claps until the end. And for most of it, it's pretty bleak, serious stuff, which yeah. would have been the most excruciating thing in the world for me. So I think as I've matured and gained experience as a performer, that's when I've learned to write about more serious stuff because it doesn't have that instant
0: trying to get a laugh type thing I suppose you don't need that safety net once you you know you you yeah band or more confident in your work so well.
1: it's partly me uh, gaining more experience on stage it's partly me uh, learning to write about politics in a different way and it's also partly me not being an 18 year old kid anymore yeah like some of my early poems were ridiculous but you know it was good fun at the time
0: your your route into poetry I suppose quite unique as well because it's slightly more like a musician would make their their route into sort of a the world of music and getting a record deal am I right in saying you didn't, you didn't get published until you'd been gigging for a long time with poetry did
1: yeah you? so Two Little Ducks is my first book uh, I'd, technically 12 years after I'd started performing poetry um, but this is the weird thing so when I started writing and recording poetry back in the day like 2006, 2007 I set up a MySpace Music profile so I could upload my poems to MySpace Music because that's what people did back in the day yeah. and um Within a couple of months, whilst I was doing the scene around Yorkshire, like comparing and stuff, somebody contacted me on MySpace and said, oh, I've got these instrumentals I've been working on. I'm looking for a lyricist to work with. Would you be interested in me layering some of your poetry over these instrumentals? And I was like, yeah, all right, sure, whatever. Um, and I'd been using the stage name Skint and Demoralised, which is taken from a Rev- Reverend of the Maker song. It was my username on the forum. That's yeah. where I got it from, like it was nothing really. And we started uh, putting stuff together. And within nine months, we signed this record deal with Universal which I realise is absolutely insane. Um, and so, because at such an early stage in my career, so this is when I was 19, for the next few years I was a professional musician, and so the way that I approach poetry is the same way that I approach being in a mad band, just because that's all I know. I was
0: going to say, is there any difference between uh, Skint and Demoralised stuff you did in terms of lyrically, that, that, you, that you do differently when you write poetry, or is it quite quite fluid, easy crossover?
1: Um, it, it's a fluid easy crossover now, like the first three skint and demoralised albums which were released between 2009 and 2013. It's all kitchen sink realism slash teenage love stories, like none of it's political at all. Right. Whereas, and then we, we basically packed it in after three albums, we came back after six years and released an album last year, uh, 2019. And that is quite political and there's a, quite a big crossover with Two Little Ducks and so now they feed off each other and they bounce off each other, which is really useful, but effectively, when uh, Skint and Demoralised started doing well when I was a kid, uh, I just stopped writing poetry and focused entirely on lyrics because like, sure, it's cool getting on stage and doing poems and getting a laugh, but suddenly I thought I were a rock star, so (laughs) poetry didn't seem quite as appealing anymore. But obviously I threw myself headfirst into writing lyrics and it ain't that different.
0: It's just that thematically it were different. We spoke briefly off-microphone about university, and I said to you, I've read somewhere, you didn't go to university, and I, and I did. And I said, but even the way I did, it, you know, it was like, honestly last minute, the morning of my results, I was thought, fuck, what am I gonna do? Yeah, yeah. Anything going in clearing? Oh, look, there's a journalism one in Northampton, right, i do that. And, and I learned sod all, really, other yeah. than, as I've already said, journalism perhaps wasn't for me, uh, or serious journalism. Music journalism was better, and I did enjoy writing. Maybe they're the sort of things I took from it, but do you feel, that not going to university sort of sprung you into your writing and, and, and impacted your writing?
1: Um, yeah I mean obviously I'm, I'm, I'm not blind to the fact that I would benefit as a writer by going to university and studying like of course like you know I, I regularly do workshops I'm always trying to learn and develop um, but at the same time the life experience that I gained I of well I know it sounds stupid but learning on the job and like the experiences that I had with Skint and Demoralised at the time when I would have otherwise been at university I do feel has put me in good stead and uh, I mean much, it was an absolutely crazy time but like yeah the, the life experience and the lessons that I learned and the way that I developed as a lyricist yeah it was probably I'm not saying it's the same as going to uni but I do feel like around that formative period of my life I was undergoing a lot of learning and development. Partly as a writer, partly as a professional, partly as a person—you know—all kinds of things I learned. Yeah. So yeah.
0: I bring it up just because, obviously, a lot a lot people are put off going university now, and there's still that sort of stigma that you must go. And if I had the chance again, possibly I wouldn't, or possibly I'd do a different course. But it's it's sort of refreshingly nice to speak to someone on record who who didn't go and has still achieved the things you have. Depends what you want to do, doesn't it? I mean, because that.
1: Nobody's ever asked me for my A-level results or my GCSE results ever. Yeah. And obviously, there's all this stuff going on at the moment uh, with uh, with the A-level results being downgraded, which is an absolute disgrace. Mm. It really is. Um, and it's easy for me to sit here, but like at end of the day, like I'm from a working-class background. Uh, I ain't got. Uh, I didn't go to university. I just sort of. I mean, yeah. I've, I've been. I've been lucky. I'm not saying that I haven't been lucky. I am also a very privileged, straight, white man. You know, I'm not saying that it's easy, but it's not the be-all and end-all. I think you are made to believe that it is the be-all and end-all. Like, you taught all through school that education is paramount, and yeah. it's, it's not essentially. It depends what you want to do, though, doesn't it? Like, if you want to be an accountant or a lawyer or a doctor, obviously it's important. So I've, re-
0: I've read in a few interviews, and you've used this phrase, and it's, you know, listeners of the podcast know it's, it's exactly the same reason I started the podcast. But you talk about making poetry more accessible in sort of reaching a, a broader audience perhaps yeah how do you go about that in your work well is there sort of a conscious thought process that goes through your mind when you're writing or is it just because of sort of the as you said kitchen sink realism that you write about that already kind of makes it more accessible
1: obviously a lot of poetry out there is, very, is quite abstract and say for example Like, I'm reading a lot of Frank O'Hara at the moment. I absolutely adore his poetry. Mm. If he were to speak to you in a pub, that's not how we would talk. So like, what I'm about to say is probably doesn't apply to everybody at all, but I always think that in my poetry, I would never use language that I wouldn't use in everyday conversation. And I try and frame it, not entirely conversational, but I try and frame it in a way that it feels like, it feels like I'm chatting to you. Even now, that i write poetry that is quite serious and quite bleak and sometimes quite subtle whatever i hate the idea of somebody sat there going what the hell is he on about and it's not a matter of dumbing it down because a lot when you say accessible a lot of people think that that means it's dumbed down it's not it's just that i always think about performing it on stage first and foremost i always think about the fact that i quite often perform in working men's clubs and pubs and at music festivals i always think well like if i was in the audience would i connect with that like me and so it's like I put a lot of effort into crafting it. I put a lot of effort into like, imagery and metaphor. and like, I really, really work my arse off. But at the end of the day, if people don't... Know, I suppose I still want it to be instant, basically, is what yeah. I'm saying, to some extent. I want people to be able to hear it. And like, much as when you hear a poem, you never get everything out of it. You, you know, a good poem, you should read five, six, seven times and get something new out of it every time. But you've got to get something out of it the first time, otherwise you're not going to go back. Yeah. And that's just my personal opinion. There's no right or wrong. But I think because of my background, because for the first seven or eight years, I never even did a poetry event. Uh, As in I was performing poetry, I never did a poetry night. I never did it in a theater. And so that's where I've cut my teeth. And like a lot of my followers online, not that I've got that many, but a lot of my followers online are like Leeds United fans, music fans, uh, political activists. They're not poetry fans. So like I, I get a buzz out of getting a response from people who aren't poetry fans
0: with poetry, basically. But I can totally understand that as a Millwall fan sat deep in Bermondsey here talking about poetry it kind of makes my heart swell a little bit anyway because this could be the first time that's ever happened. (laughs) Uh, Political poetry is a big part of uh, Two Little Ducks uh, and a big part of what what you do in sort of your portfolio I guess. You write a lot of political poetry and I've spoken, read a few poets on the podcast already, Jess Green to mention one, Um, amazing political poetry. And I feel like sometimes it, it splits the room a bit, political poetry. Oh, big time. Because obviously it is quite divisive because, you know, everyone has different views, don't they? Yeah. But do you feel that it has caused, I don't know, a divide within the poetry world in terms of your work? Or do you feel like people read it and go, yeah, that's fine, that's your opinion?
1: Um, it's, not, it's difficult to say. There aren't actually so obviously when I say when you say political poetry there's two different types of political poetry there's you know um, if somebody were to write a poem that was about you know feminism or sexuality or yeah. the patriarchy yeah, yeah, yeah. Whatever, that is political poetry yeah, yeah, yeah. but the way that Jess and I for two examples write it is, is specifically about like Westminster politics yeah. like political with a big capital P yeah, It's a good point point. Um, yeah. and there aren't many people who um, commentate specifically on the current political you know like there aren't many people who would talk about Corbyn or Brexit or whatever probably very wisely Um, (laughs) it does feel a bit daft I I, I don't feel like anybody in the poetry world would criticize you for it Um, and to an extent if you do a political night you are sorry if you do a poetry night you are very much preaching to the converted. Uh, which is actually why I wanted to write this stuff in Two Little Ducks about Brexit. So um, for anybody who doesn't know, base, which I presume is most people, one of the strands in the show is trying to defend the working class Leave vote. Now, uh, it's very clear to call out racism. I would never defend racism in any shape or form. But a lot of people who voted Leave from working class backgrounds are not racist and didn't do it to get rid of all the immigrants. And that, For me, that was a very contentious... Um, issue to talk about but i felt like somebody who's from a working class background i'm from Wakefield 66% leave uh, from a coal mine, coal mining community a lot of those people voted leave and i I thought there's no point me getting on stage and going oh brexiteers what a lot of wankers they are i thought i want to i want to effectively rub people up the wrong way and make them see a, a different perspective and so that was quite a risky thing to do but then at the same time in that show i'm also talking about my experiences at the calais jungle which is talking about you know the plight of refugees and trying to make people empathise with refugees because now more so than ever, like refugees are basically seen as like scum, mm. like vermin. Uh, and unfortunately, much as it breaks my heart to say, a lot of the people who say that refugees are scum or vermin, or whatever, might come from a working class background. So on the one hand, I'm appeasing those communities that voted leave, whilst potentially upsetting the liberal elite that go out to watch poetry. Uh, that's said tongue-in-cheek by the way but then the people who might be in that liberal elite would instantly sympathize with refugees but maybe be rubbed up the wrong way with the Brexit stuff so basically I'm pissing everybody off but like, there's no point doing taking the easy way out uh, I thought you did a good job of
0: pissing everybody off like, yeah
1: I did do a good like I, I, I get abuse every day not just from my poetry but for tweets and stuff but I, I don't really care and I just feel like I'm in a very very unique position like mm. there's not many people um, from a working class background who talk like me, uh, who are professional poets. Yeah. Um, and so I feel like it's my sort of responsibility to make sure that those stories and those voices are whatever. I'm not saying I'm speaking on behalf of everybody, of course I'm not. I'm only speaking on behalf of me, Sen. But I recognise that my voice is relatively unique, so um, I should
0: use it to talk about those issues, basically. I, th- I thought, you know, the first time I read Two Little Ducks as well, I thought I haven't seen anybody do this because. You know, although we're opposite ends of the country, as it were, i come from a working class background. Yeah. I was probably the odd one out in terms of my vote because, yeah, most people I knew in those working class communities did vote leave. Yeah. But you hit the nail on your head when you just said that they didn't necessarily vote leave for those racist reasons. And no. I think you do give voice and you do argue, you know, or oh, try and make you know, Remainers and Brexiteers see sense. Like they're, yeah. They're, they're not these horrible races. Some there will be, obviously. Yeah, of course, in, in, yeah. Of course. But yeah, no, I, I totally understand what you're saying. Let's talk about Two Little Ducks because the first time, I can't remember the first time I read it, it was a little while ago, but I, I read it again, obviously, when I knew I was getting you on. Um, and I re- I, the feelings rushed back to me when I read it because it, in parts, I almost felt like getting teary with the, the, the Calais jungle and, and some of the stuff and the experiences that you've put into those poems, but when I finished reading it, I felt like that almost cheering in parts of it, because I thought, wow, this is you, you've sort of represented people like myself, and there are a lot of working class writers, but I, sometimes i don't think i don't know I don't think they represent actual working class communities as well as you did like you, you like you said you right. gave you gave quite a good case for. The reasons people might have voted leave. Yeah, yeah. Whereas normally it's pe- things like the refugees, where you people going, look, they're humans too. Yeah, yeah. So you, you kind of did both, and I, I thought you did it, did it really well. It was a, 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 it was a,
1: a risky decision, but I didn't feel, I didn't really feel like I had much choice. So I, <laughs> basically, right, um, I'm going to be really honest here. I should, probably shouldn't say this, but I will. Um, I always sort of knew that doing Edinburgh Fringe was like a big step up and at this point I was a full-time poet um, and I was sort of trying to think what I could do to challenge myself to maybe take myself to the next step now I know that sounds really careerist but all I'm talking about is my development as an artist Mm. right and I always knew that Edinburgh Fringe was this thing you should do but it costs an absolute fortune it's outrageously expensive to do right and then I got the Nationwide advert Uh, September 2016 and I I got a big chunk of money and I thought right okay I'm gonna do Edinburgh okay what am I going to write a show about (laughs) and so this is late 2016 and obviously Brexit had just happened and it was either side of a Brexit vote that I was in Calais doing this volunteering and so what I was saying earlier was I don't want to just preach to the converted most people in Edinburgh would be like me uh, you know, socially liberal, oh, Guardian yeah, yeah. readers, like that's just a fact, and there's nothing yeah, wrong yeah. with that, because like I say, that's me as well. But there's no point in me just going up there and going, you know, hug this a refugee. What, this is what you already know, this yeah, is what you already yeah. think. So that's yeah. why I came up with the idea to contrast the Brexit thing with the Calais thing, partly because they happened side by side in my life. And then the third strand, obviously, is the kitchen sink realism, about a fictionalised character called Maria, that I'd been writing about for 10 years before I met my now fiancé <laughs> Maria, which confuses a lot of people. <laughs> Um, but I basically cobbled the show together last minute because like, this stuff had just happened to me. It was within a year, like when I'm on stage performing it in Edinburgh at the start of my run, it was a year to the day It's the last time I went to Calais. So this had just happened. So it almost like, it wasn't like I'd spent a year. It was just like, okay, this, this, bang, that's what I need to write about. And I quite like the fact that I did that because maybe I'd have bottled it otherwise. But um, I think it, yeah,
0: talking about, you know, social sort of liberal points of view, I mean, clearly me and yourself are on the same page. And as you said, people at poetry gigs, you'll be preaching to the converted, as you put it. Yeah. And I think there's a a tendency for, especially with the the media these days, being predominantly right-wing, you know, to to, to paint just as, you know, perhaps some extreme left paint the right in certain regards. But with the left, it's like... Oh well, yeah, you know, tree huggers, they're you know refugees, this, that, and the other. So I think what you did is, as you said, refreshingly sort of brave in a way to go. Well, let's let, let's apply that same theory, but to the right and to the yeah, people that yeah. voted leave. So you've already mentioned that there's three narratives. You've, you've got the Maria narrative, the Calais jungle. Uh, and What would you describe the other one as? Sort of like a the Brexit political. Yeah. Sort
1: of Brexit, Calais Maria, Brexit, Calais Maria. That's how I remember it in my head, like... So let's,
0: yeah. let's talk about the Calais jungle, because, I mean, you've already mentioned you, you first-hand went over there and volunteered. And yeah. I, I can't begin to imagine, you know, what the things you saw, but reading the Calais sort of narrative-fed in this, amazing. You've got, you got tra- um, poems like Along the Tracks, where, you know, the human connection element that, that you sort of do in that poem, it's, it's the bit where you, you're talking about walking with this man and... Yeah. He Sort of thinks, Why are you here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And You're thinking, Oh, why am I here? And then yeah, yeah. you, put, I think you say, but you both probably think, Why are the refugees here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you start, uh, there's like a conversation. I don't know if it,
1: yeah, obviously. Like, so the Calais stuff was the most difficult thing for me to write about because I didn't want to come across as the white savior mm. guy. Um, Obviously, I did not want to speak on behalf of refugees. I would like somebody t- t- who was giving me advice was like, oh, you should write a poem from the perspective of like a 10 year old refugee kid. Well, like, I can't do, I cannot do that, right? Yeah. But I had this preconceived idea of what I was going to see based on what I'd read in The Guardian or sitting on Channel 4 News or whatever. And when I actually went there, it completely contrasted with everything I expected to see. Um, and like, uh, all the worst things that were there, were not in the news and all the worst things in the news weren't really there I know that sounds weird but it was such a warped contrast with what was being broadcast and so I thought all I can do is tell people what I saw and like these you know the conversations that are in there a lot of it's based on conversations and human connection because well they're real conversations that happened and Rather than me go, this refugee thinks that. All I'm saying is, I said that, and then they said that, and then Do you know,
0: like it's. But is that that poem "Welcome to the Jungle," where I think one of the lines is that, that you walked away strangely reassured? Yeah, because which sort of hits the nail on the head with what you're saying. We weren't getting that picture in, through the media, were we? That that there was people there and they were, you know, nice people.
1: Yeah, well, this is it, right? So I'm not, I'm not gonna say that it's a happy place because obviously it was horrible, no, yeah, and yeah, yeah. you know, I only walked down the main strip. I didn't see a lot of the horrible stuff that was happening. But the fact is, you, you expect this like really hostile place where you might get robbed or attacked and everyone sat there like setting things on fire and really angry. And like honestly they're playing drums all day, there's like workshops, there's classrooms for kids, you get like free nans, free cups of tea, like there's just this amma- like when I were there people were building a theatre and building a boxing ring with the bare hands with planks of wood that they found. Like it's not like it was a utopia. Of course it wasn't but the camaraderie and the community was incredible from people who've sacrificed more than we could ever imagine
0: and, and it, been through absolute hell just to get there, you know what I mean? Like, and you paint that community and that spirit so clearly, but I think the other thing that, that keeps reappearing, and rightly so, is that they're not there because they want to be there. They're no, there out of at course necessity. No, it's the last place we want to yeah. be.
1: Um, and it's the best, best of humanity and the worst of humanity at the same time, because whilst you've got people who've got absolutely nothing, working together to, you know, dish out lessons and, like, you know, they're a pop-up school and, like, give out food and that. The one thing that makes their life a misery on a daily basis is the police and the National Guard. Yeah. Like, and that, like it's, it's not the fact that they haven't got food or water or medicine. There's no charities allowed in there. It's the fact that they might get tear gassed or shot or fucking attacked. Like, this, the poem in there about the kids being... Uh, about the police throwing CS gas at the kids oh, the I swear ghost. on my life
0: with a fruit the ghost one
1: yeah, that, I, yeah I swear on my life that happened I sw- Like, no, there's not one word of air is not true in that uh, and it's just insane to think that um, t- it's a bit strong to say Nazis but like it ain't that far off man the way yeah. they treat them like
0: what What I loved about that narrative though was I mean the poem 22 miles absolutely bent my brain and I'm I've been saying this to a few poets on this series. It's one of those poems I read where I thought, oh, "What is the point in me writing a poem? This is so good." Because th- that poem, the bit about the—is uh, it Bradford sleeping? Bradford Back, City sleeping bag. I mean, yeah. I'm laughing at that point, and I know. then you go, "I didn't have the heart to tell him." And then there's that—you repeat that at the end about yeah. how will they be greeted in England. And but what again? What bent my brain is you point out all these distances in England, don't you? that are 22 miles. Yeah, and that makes you think. Well, that's not so bad, you know. That's that's very close by. But when you think of Calais and the way the media represent the jungle, yeah, it's almost like a different world. Exactly, it's like keep yeah. them away. Like, yeah. it's,
1: it's horrible. It's mad to think how close it is. Yeah. And but that was one of the reasons it was, because obviously there's refugees all over the world, but it was so important for me to go to Calais and write about Calais because it's not happening 50 years ago and it's not happening at the other side of the world. It's fucking 22 miles away and it's happening now. Not that we should have more sympathy for people that're next door but like unfortunately the way that our media presents things that is the case like if there was um, a mass shooting in France tomorrow I got obviously I hope there's not like that'd be all, but like there'd be a lot more uh, media sympathy and upset than if it happened in like Singapore for example yeah like it's just we are taught to measure our sympathy by distance which is insane but yeah, Calais proximity. And like I say, like I've been to, when I was a teenager, I went to the Auschwitz Museum, and I know it's not the same thing, I know it's not, but this is something that happened, even though it was only like 60, 70 years ago, you can't, it's not in your lifetime, you can't contemplate it, but this, even though it's not as bad, it's happening now. Yeah. So that's why I had to do it, basically.
0: It's sort of, sort of similar, I don't know if you've seen Russell Brand talk about things, and he says, you know, there's issues now that in... I don't know, 50, 60 year times be like homelessness. Yeah, they, yeah, a, they yeah, actually yeah. used to just let people sleep on the streets. I know, and, yeah, yeah. And yeah. Uh, they used to eat animals and all sorts. But like, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. It, it's that sort of vibe, I guess. The other, the other narrative uh, was the sort of Brexit narrative as well. And there's some amazing poems in there. And, and two I want to talk about. For, I mean, Red, White and Blue, you've done a few performances of on, yeah. on, on YouTube and stuff. So, I mean, if you haven't read it, go and check that out. But I loved it because... I've got this sort of relationship with the Union Flag as well because I used to be a mod growing up. Yeah, yeah. My old man called me Jimmy after Quadrophenia. It's my favourite film. <laughs> I think of the Libertines. I think of you know mods yeah, and yeah. that. But then I see someone flying the Union Jack in their back garden, and I think, oh, racist. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you constantly repeat. There's that sort of thread throughout the poem of you know it, it's I'm proud and patriotic, but yeah. I'm also a little bit. Sort of embarrassed that it, it, it can mean that sort of thing. I just wondered if you could, for anyone who hasn't read it, talk, talk about that because so it perfectly summed up my relationship.
1: Well, what fascinates me about the Union flag because, like, I'm same as you, like, uh, always been obsessed with mod culture and Quadrophenia is one of my favourite films mm. and like, it's like a pop, it's like a pop art icon. Like, it's almost like a Andy Warhol design. Do you know what I mean? It's so like you see it on carnaby street and it's this cool like swinging 60s it's a yeah. sexy flag like it's so much more for the flag and like but then you know a thousand people could see that flag and have a thousand very different responses or one person could see that flag in ten different places and have ten different responses, like you said. Then you see it in someone's back garden, and suddenly it's like, ooh. And I, I did that poem, for example. I did that poem when I do that poem on stage. I get the flag out and I hold it aloft behind my shoulders, and that in itself gets a gets yeah. a like. But I did it in Glasgow on a Friday night with the band, mate. So there's two hundred people in the room, pissed up on a Friday there to see music, and I get a union flag out in Glasgow. Oh, my God, it were it were insane, like and. That's what I love about the flag, and obviously with Brexit, it just took on this new, like, farage, bulldog spirit, mm. like, unfortunately, racism. Like, it just... The union flag became even more divisive and more and even more powerful because it was a union flag over the EU flag. Yeah. So I just had to write about it. It's something that's always, always, always fascinated me. Always fascinated me. And um, I just don't, like... Much as I'm praising it and saying, like, you know, uh, fry ups in 40 degrees sunshine and all this, like, British culture, which I love, at the same time, like, we don't know about the atrocities of the empire and all the horrible stuff that's associated with that flag from hundreds of years ago. Um, and concentrate, like, we invented concentration camps, stuff like that, it just do not get spoken about. So I wanted to try and do something that was really honest in that. It really criticises it, but it's also not just saying, if you have that flag, you're a racist, because it's like, I know why you love that flag, I yeah, love that yeah, flag yeah. too, but you've got to understand, now obviously, like, I get, as a white person, I've never felt threatened by that flag, now that's because I live in Yorkshire, so if I lived in Belfast, or Derry for example, or Glasgow, like I said, that flag would be totally different, if I was black, if I was Asian, that flag would be totally different, or if I was gay maybe even, like if you, you know, I'm if somebody was beaten up by the National Front in the 80s, you know what I mean? Like, so... Yeah. That's a really weird example, but you know what I'm saying? Um, I think a lot of people... White privilege is a big thing now, and a lot of people... White privilege is part of the reason why... You can't understand why that flag would be offensive, but it really, really is. <laughs> yeah. To a lot of
0: people. We've I been mean, talking about white privilege, admittedly, off off mic to, to a few of the poets, this series and that, and I said, with the working class, I don't think... Not all of them, but I don't think a lot of them, like, people... I've seen sort of in the area I grew up, they have a real problem with that phrase white privilege. Yeah, yeah, totally. Because I don't think they quite understand what it means. Because in their head, they think, oh, well, I weren't privileged. I grew up in, yeah. you know, Peckham. and But that's not what it's about, that, that. No, it's very, very problematic. And I
1: totally understand why. If you'd have told me when I was 17 that I'll, I had any kind of privilege and I laughed in your face, I do totally get that. And I think, I'm not saying we should think of a new term for it, but. It'll take a long time before people come on board. Yeah. It's something that I talk about, I'm trying to talk about a lot now, obviously, with what's happening with Black Lives Matter. That in itself has thrown up an absolute shit show of opposition and, yeah, the term white privilege, it is problematic, but it, it's, it's so real. And the definition of privilege is not realizing that you have it. And another phrase that I like uh, is oppression, sorry. Privilege is when equality feels like oppression yeah. so when white people are going oh, well why are you saying black lives well, that's a definition of privilege yeah.
0: why should they have what I've got it has been amazing some of the conversations I've had in, in pubs with you know older working class people who've actually when you actually explain sort of the ideas like you just said you know if you don't realise you've got it that is privilege basically yeah. And once you have that conversation, nine times out of ten, actually, they walk away understanding the term. Yeah. And and I don't know that that makes me feel a bit better about life. But the most simple, the most
1: simple thing that I ask people is, when have you, when have you been the only white person in the room, mm. like at a
0: gig or at a football yeah, yeah, match? Yeah, that's a great way of yeah. And like I'm gonna use that.
1: Do you know what I mean <laughs> yeah. though? Like or yeah, on yeah. a crowded train or something. Like now where, where I live in East Ham now, it's 11% white British. Um, but even and that's you know it's great i love living in such a multicultural area but even a large number of immigrants uh romanian or well mainly romanian some to polish so like it's still a lot of white people like and i just
0: i I just don't think yeah it's going to take a long time but we've got to dig deep i think a big part behind it as well is you know not interacting and, and exposing yourself to that multiculturalism a lot of these especially the older generations you know they've never worked or anything I'm, I'm thinking back to when they have worked i mean worked with sort of people from you know multicultural backgrounds I, I remember when i worked in pubs for years yeah i got to know so many romanians that worked in the kitchen and yeah. i absolutely loved their culture yeah. and they would cook me their food and but because i've integrated with them they're not scary anymore they're not you know yeah, you don't yeah. listen to the media but i think that is part of the problem i guess but the problem, I think,
1: I think that yeah, that is part of a problem. Whether like, oh you're alright, I just don't like the other lot, you know. Yeah, like yeah. yeah. But uh, like you know, the the, the age old thing of like somebody will slag off Muslims and then get a taxi home with yeah. a curry or you know. Yeah. Um. But I think the problem is now a lot a lot of people because I did it. I don't know if you know, but um, am so from Wakefield and Wakefield Trinity, the rugby team, they didn't take the knee last weekend. Right. They're one of the first teams in the world not to take the knee. And so I did a post about it saying I was disappointed and I've had so much abuse. I've had emails, I've had all sort, all kinds of stuff. I could see that on and Twitter actually, yeah. It's people who oppose Black Lives Matter. I genuinely don't believe a lot, a, a lot of people who oppose Black Lives Matter, are, it's not that they don't like black people, it's not that they're racist. It's just that white privilege is a big part of the problem, and that not realising that you've got white privilege is not the same as being racist. It's not the same thing. It is possible to be completely blind to white privilege whilst not being racist. And I think if you're so blinded by white privilege, you might see Black Lives Matter and go, well, hold on a minute. Uh, now I'll never defend anyone who says all lives matter or white lives matter. That's that's fucking ridiculous. But I can understand why it, for some people it's a difficult thing to get the head around. Yeah. And I just think it's a learning process. Um, if if this goes, if somebody hears that interview and goes, "Matter," but says that black people who oppose Black Lives Matter are are all right, that's not what I'm saying. But I, like with the Brexit debate, it's far more complicated than that. And also, like, I was thinking on the way here people they don't like being told what to do particularly in Britain and we have this like very outdated arrogance that I think comes from the empire it's like I don't want to be told what to do by the EU I don't want to be told to kneel I don't want to be told to wear a mask Mm. it's this sort of like bullish like
0: you can't tell me what to do and I think it's the same mindset I I do I do think yeah maybe it's sort of post empire but then I also think back to the Second World War yeah. when everyone was told there's that posting around, so it's like, right, you can't have your lights on, blackout, yeah, out, yeah, yeah, and everyone just fucking did it.
1: Yeah, everyone did it then. Yeah, no, it's frustrating. It's
0: frustrating the selfishness. It makes you think what changed in the yeah. space of you know seventy to hundred odd years. I know. You know. It kind of leads nicely onto the other poem I want to talk about in Two Little Ducks, is uh, "Voids Tempting Mystery," which, um, we, we, I don't know, it's it's one of those poems where it's quite difficult to actually talk about that but that is something that happens quite a lot especially in working class communities. I know a number of people that will remain nameless that I've seen go down that route so it was kind of refreshing again to read poetry about that, that issue. It's the scariest
1: thing I've ever read and every time I perform it it's the scariest thing I'll ever perform. Yeah. Uh, basically um, it's a sequence of 50 haikus uh, simply because the issue is so complex that I couldn't find myself writing about it in any way other than a haiku. That's the only reason I did it. It wasn't meant to be a pretentious showy-offy phone thing. It was just mm. the only way I could navigate it and it's basically like when I was 16, 17, uh, I was very much devil's advocate. I was very much angry that there was no working-class vote in the ballot box. Obviously at this point, in, this is when of 2005, Tony Blair is like a war criminal, he's new labor, it's all this, there was no one for the working class. And because I was a kid, I was 16, 17, and obviously white privilege and all, I, I was sort of like taken in by some of the stuff that the BNP was saying and I nearly joined the BNP Cause they didn't say, we don't like brown people. They didn't say, you know, where, ra- no. it was all like talking about like the NHS and public services and working class representation. And I, because I knew it was a bit naughty and because I went to, I followed Legion United around the country and I fell in with her own crowd and it's all about pride and identity and rebellion. And I was very, very much an anti-authority figure at the time. Um, I sort of fell for it a little bit. Um, now obviously I did a complete U-turn and realized how utterly stupid I was being. And I've yeah. been been an anti-racism campaigner since then, but I know a lot of people have had that same experience. And so it felt criminal for me to be talking about all this shit without owning up to the fact that I directly did that. I can't
0: be posturing about racism and working class while well without admitting that that happened to me. Yeah. Like, but I think uh, reading it because it's set in a way it is in the, in the haikus. I sort of I, I started reading it I'm going, all oh, right, yeah, this is kind of similar to oh Quadrophenia, Yeah, I used to be into. Yeah. That. Oh yeah. yeah, look, I went to football. And then there's that crucial moment sort of on the second page where you, it goes down that other road, and yeah. you think, oh, wow, I've seen so many people do that, and yeah. you think, wow, actually, how close was? Maybe I, in yeah. the way I grew up, doing that, and so I think it was a really uh, a great poem to have in there. Totally changed the uh, conversation here. Hurricane in my head. <laughs> <laughs> it couldn't be more different, could it? So I think this is going to absolutely rain now.
1: It's about to absolutely absolutely it hammer
0: down. it down. Are we are we braving it with coats or? Let's see how, let's see how waterproof these coats are. So, we've had to move indoors because it was absolutely hammering it down. Were you gonna, were going to mention something on the back of that last poem we were talking about?
1: Yeah, all I was saying was um, so that poem is based on me when I was 16, 17, which is like 2005, 2006. And in the lead up to the 2006 local council elections, Margaret Hodge, who was a Labour MP for Barking and Dagenham, she said that based on her experiences on the doorstep, she reckoned eight out of ten working class families were planning on voting BMP. So like at the time, a lot of people saw them as like a legitimate working class alternative. Now, obviously I realise that's wrong and they were a nasty, vile, horrible party. But when you're 16, 17, you think you know everything. Um, You're dismayed by the fact that there are no working class politicians and they say things which at the time you believe to be acceptable. Uh, None of which is overtly racist, but obviously is racist at the core. It's just it was just a very easy trap for me to fall into when I when I'm spend every weekend travelling around the country watching Leeds and being a bit rebellious and being a bit naughty and thinking I'm a hooligan. Um, yeah, just something that I slipped into and I've always been very uh, outspoken with my opinions and I've always liked to challenge the status quo and all that. So, yeah. but yeah, obviously. I've been an anti-racism campaigner since i was 18 and i I am deeply ashamed of it but i just felt like for me to have this conversation and not mention that would be uh yeah would be terrible basically
0: as i said like the reason i brought it up is because it's one of those poems that i think again is something and a lot of your work does it it, uh, issues or certain things within the working class communities especially that that attention isn't brought to enough, really. And I think it's, it's great that, that it is. So as I said outside before, I absolutely hammered it down. <laughs> Complete sort of a change of pace. But a hurricane in my head. <laughs> kids, kids, uh, well. kids poetry, 11 to 13. Um, <laughs> worlds apart. <laughs> yeah, worlds apart. But this is what I love about poetry. You can, you can write a collection like that aimed at 11 to 13-year-olds. Um, and then you can write something like Two Little Ducks.
1: I had to do one back-to-back, so basically, um, I did a poem for Eureka, which is the National Children's Museum, uh, it's based in Halifax, which is obviously down the road from where I'm from, they asked me to write a poem for the 25th birthday, at that point I've never even considered writing a poem that might be read by a young person, yeah. so Eureka posted it to the Facebook page, I shared it, somebody that I'm friends with on Facebook, through my musical connection, works at Bloomsbury, and was like, oh... I didn't know you wrote kids' poetry. Would you be interested in chatting to Bloomsbury about writing a kids' poetry collection? And I was like, bloody hell, of co- obviously, of course. Mm. So I went in for a meeting with Hannah, the editor, um, and chatted about the sort of things that I would like to be in the book, what I'd like to achieve with the book. And she said, oh, that sounds great. Can you send me five of your favourite kids' poems in the next two weeks? So I panicked and went away and wrote, wrote five poems from scratch because I'd never written a kids' poem before. Yeah. And she was like, great, I'll have 70 by the end of July. Um, Now, the thing is, I'd still not finished writing the version of Two Little Ducks that you've got in that book, and that had to be in by the end of June. Right. So, like, I finished writing Two Little Ducks, and then straight away I had to go to writing a 70-poems kids' poetry collection, literally straight away. And so I'd go down to the park next to where we lived, and I'd sit in the park for, like, four, five, six hours writing kids' poems for, like, a month. I nearly had a panic attack, genuinely, sorry, I had panic attacks, I nearly had a nervous breakdown, I got it handed in right at the last minute, and, well, they published it, so yeah. I I'm mean, very, very
0: lucky. I have a copy of it, and I've, uh, I've flicked through them, because as an English teacher, sometimes, you know, the, the poems, they trundle out, especially for, for kids at the, the lower end, at Key Stage 3, Yeah, I just think, how are they going to connect with that? So, yeah. something like that is unreal for teachers.
1: Well, it's similar to what I was saying earlier. Like I just imagined the kind of thing that I'd enjoy reading when I was eleven, twelve, thirteen, and tried to write that. Yeah. Basically, because I hated poetry when I was that age. Hated poetry at yeah. school, and also that transition from primary to secondary, that's got to be one of the most brutal times of your life. Hundred percent. Like from being in year six and thinking you're all that to going to year seven and suddenly being this like bogey on the wall of a bus. It's m- mental. So yeah, I wanted to try and
0: capture that. What I loved about it though is that there's still a hint of rebellion. Yeah, know, in a lot I of can't help it. Yeah, <laughs>
1: and also like challenging like gender stereotypes and um, trying to champion the underdog in some way. So, yeah, th- and, and also the rebellion, like the homework excuses and skiving off school. Like, there is still that like anti establishment rebellion in there. Um, I can't help it. I
0: just, <laughs> can't, I just can't help it. So, that leads me nicely on to talk about Foyle's Young Poet you you were a patron of Foyle's young poet yeah Awards. yeah yeah
1: that's uh, yeah i'm extremely lucky that they asked me to do that alongside Teresa Lola like uh, since i started writing poetry properly i've always known about the Foyle young poets award yeah um i was i got into it i, I knew about it when i was too old to enter unfortunately but yeah it's very prestigious and for me to potentially inspire somebody to write a poem at that age that's that's all that's everything i could ask for really since 11 17 year olds so the fact that they saw me as somebody who might potentially be a role model that's a real honor yeah Um,
0: yeah obviously writing a hurricane In your head, probably helped as well. Yeah, um, definitely. Yeah. But it's certainly something we try and encourage. Uh, I've said to you already in email, many of our students at school to, to try and enter. So. Yeah.
1: It, it genuinely could change your life. I know that the deadline's closed now, but it's every year. Yeah, um, it yeah. genuinely could change your life. And I think for somebody who doesn't feel like they have a voice in the world, poetry gives you that voice. Yeah. And, you know, more so nowadays when we're learning more about white privilege, male privilege, straight privilege, able-bodied, all the different types of privilege. I mean, that's not obviously the only purpose that poetry serves, but now more than ever, it's really important to have as diverse a range of voices as possible, and poetry can provide that.
0: I read, uh, I think it was an interview you did with uh, a paper up to North, (laughs) that that they they said that there's been over like 100% sort of increase on submissions this year as well for yeah polls, which is an amazing statistic i know it's, it's
1: really good and i think a lot of that's obviously down to the lockdown i think a lot of that's down to young people are so much more politicized now mm. um i think that's part of it and i just i feel like also with social media everybody is encouraged to have a profile and a voice and an opinion not that kids are on twitter but even on
0: instagram you know yeah so yeah i think it's great i think it's great the, the more poetry the better i love as well i mean reading a hurricane in your head as an adult and then talking to you now and hearing you in interviews it like it's, it's quite clear that the kids' poetry is just as important to you as the sort of adult poetry it's almost
1: well. it's almost more important really just because I think it's more likely to have a change yeah. like not that I've given up on grown-ups but um, I don't try and lecture kids politically I don't try and brainwash them politically I'm just trying to encourage them to use their voice and think outside the box and and challenge the status quo not just accept what the fed, you know, like I say, when it's gender stereotypes, sexuality, whatever, don't just accept the narrative that you're sold. Like, I mean, that sounds like some kind of weird conspiracy theorist. It's not that. Um, But yeah, I'm just trying to inspire people to be a bit rebellious and use a voice, basically. So to me, I get more of a buzz out of, say, a 12-year-old kid in a secondary school who... All day long gets told, shut up, sit down, shut up, go there, shut up, bad boy, bad lad, whatever. Yeah, yeah. And then I can spend two hours doing poetry with him and suddenly he's like, oh, I matter, I've got a voice. Yeah, I yeah. could... And that to me, that's the best feeling in the world, okay. apart from Leeds getting promoted. <laughs> Sorry.
0: <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll, I'll get some of the students to send you some letters then when I, uh, when I use a poem. Yeah, definitely. So uh, before we sort of get to the final section talking about your writing process, I, I need to talk about... Uh, nymphs and frogs
1: yeah um so basically uh when i went i did a, a week in edinburgh in 2015 just a week and i wanted something to sell at my show and to me the idea of having my poetry p- published in the book was alien i didn't think anyone had published me and even if i did it might take years and i just had no idea but because i'd always written uh t- for people to hear it i thought well i'll release an album yeah so i put i, I put together an album and I spoke to the record label that my band was signed to at the time, and they said, oh, well, why don't you set up this spoken word record label as like an imprint on our label? They're called High Star Hit Records, by the way. Shout out to them. So like, admittedly, it wasn't even my idea at first, but it was also not meant to grow into what it has done. And I just thought, well, when you go on YouTube to check out A Poet, so many of the videos on there are really badly recorded, mm. over from like 10 years ago, or some poets just aren't on YouTube. So I thought, well, I, I can't release that many albums, but I want to at least... Produce a high-quality recording so that if you if your natural instinct isn't to read a book, you might spend an hour listening to Louis Vazakili and fall in love with it on the CD. So, I just had this idea to set up. uh, Basically, it's like a a gap in the market now. Obviously, it's not it's not lucrative. It's not that. I don't mean that in a capitalist sense, but I just thought that there's not a lot of really quality audio recorded poetry out there. So
0: I think you're right, and I mean the that you've got on there, you have got Selena Godden, yeah, got, uh, Luke Wright. I think it's got one on there as well. Yeah, an amazing lineup. And I need to talk. You know, you've had some again amazing opportunities to perform. Uh, I see we've mentioned him already, but the Mod Father himself, Paul Weller. Yeah, you've done a bit. Ken Loach, who's an absolute hero of Yeah, mine. yeah. Uh, Corbyn, and obviously your beloved Leeds as well. Yeah. When I'm you play gigs, especially uh, things like that, I mean, we've we've had Luke Wright. On uh, last series, talking about the libertines, and I, yeah. mean, I was there for for the one at Brixton, and you know what, he was unreal, but he got a hard time uh, as he spoke about, you know, because especially libertines style crowd, you know, they've got a certain of uh, course, yeah. yeah, but you know, he got a hard time, but he, he was still fantastic. How do you, how have you found playing those sort of big? I mean, Paul Weller, come on, that is. Um. It's important to say that
1: it wasn't just Paul Weller with Matt Abbott supporting. Like, obviously, it was, <laughs> um, it was a massive event in Brighton at the Dome, which was...
0: I've sold you out there, haven't I? No, um, yeah.
1: no. Nah, nah. down the river there. No, nah, no, nah, <laughs> I, d- I don't want to mislead people, but it yeah, was a yeah, massive yeah. event that was sort of organised by... I think it was organised by Momentum, but it was basically a, like, let's get behind Jeremy Corbyn type do. Yeah. And there were probably about 10 musical acts on the bill... And then I was doing poetry in between the bands, and then did a little set, and the headliner was Paul Weller, so technically i've supported like yeah I was it was the same event um, but you know I, I love it, I actually prefer it because i love because what, because of the way I started out, I love performing in a room where people don't really want to hear poetry and you've got to win them over from from your first word. Mm. I just love it, and I also hope that I'm actually more likely to connect with a room full of people who are there to see. Paul Weller or Ken Loach than I am with people who uh, like hardcore poetry event goers I know that sounds weird but it's partly inverted snobbery it's partly inferiority complex and it's partly just that I've always grown up being obsessed with the jam so I like to think that my poetry would resonate with people who also have... Do you know what I mean? Like, so I, I, it's, it's partly that it's more difficult. I love the uphill struggle and I love the yeah. challenge, but it's partly that I also feel more at home.
0: Best band in the world.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I was listening to uh, All Mod Cons on the way here. It's one of my favourite albums of all time. But also because of my experience being in the band, Like, you know, we played Leeds and Reading and The Roundhouse and sometimes like, big crowds, and I'd do poetry between songs then. So maybe I'm sort of... Used to doing poetry in a musical setting, but I love the challenge.
0: Serial mod cons over setting suns.
1: I mean, I love setting suns as well, obviously. But but they're
0: they're normally the two that are contested, aren't
1: they? Yeah, I know. I do love sound effects as well, like that, anyways. But yeah, no, like, so I I love it. I love the challenge. The harder the challenge, the more I I love it to be honest.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Last thing before we talk about your writing process is uh, obviously we mentioned the sort of A level result fuck up, and if anything, it's proved that class is still as prevalent as ever in terms of opening doors perhaps. Yeah, big time. Do you think in poetry, you know, you've got a working class geezer talking to another working class geezer here about poetry and there you know there's been great steps made to publish working class writers but do you still feel that we've that there's a way to go in an art form like poetry?
1: Yeah, I do. And I need to be really careful what I say here. Mm, of um, course. but there is inevit- there is you can't deny that there is some kind of like poetry establishment for want of a better word like a sort of like um it's a it, it it does still in some ways present itself as a very exclusive club and there are certain gatekeepers to that exclusive club and you know it does sometimes come across as being very academic and very elitist and not something that I immediately connect with now don't get me wrong like i love I love a lot of poets who are, you know, from that world. Like, I love Simon Armitage, I love Caroline Duffy, you know, the last two poet laureates, which, you know, it's not that I don't like it, but it does feel to me as somebody from my background the, my initial response is it does feel a bit pretentious and a bit academic and like Selena Godden her album Livewire which came out on my label that was uh, shortlisted for the Poetry Society's Ted Hughes Award Amazing. in 2017 and so we went to the award ceremony and Carol Ann Duffy was the MC and all that and I, honestly I've never felt so out of place in my life because right. it was very like it wasn't like a tuxedo do, but it was very posh. It was very... And so, to me, that embodies a poetry establishment. Now, that's not fair, what I'm saying. Like I say, that comes with my preconceived chip on my shoulder, working class, whatever. But it's it's true to an extent. I'm probably being over top. But also, like, so my partner, Maria, my fiance Maria, who's been on this podcast, uh, yeah. she's been um, applying to a lot of, uh, like, journals and poetry magazines recently, and it, it takes hours. No, it it does. takes hours, and I think what what I think is, um, and I'm, this is just my thoughts, like to have the, that the time on your hands to be able to do that is in itself something that most people from working class background can't afford. If you're working a full time job, yeah, right, yeah,
0: yeah, 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 it's
1: it's difficult to find time to write. Never mind spend three hours applying for a journal or a zine. I hear that. I hear and that. like most people who go on like. If, um on courses, it's like 800 odd quid. It's people who do it as a hobby and it, who can afford to do it as a yeah. hobby. And it's not just money, it's time. And I think that's one of the things, like when you are from a working class background, like say, you're working your ass off, like I, I do feel like there's a big gap between, um, obviously the Arts Council helps a lot. Like if you've got Arts Council funding to develop a play or a book and they give you 10 grand and it's time to write, that's incredible. But that's something that somebody from a more privileged background might already have, mm. time to write. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. time to write is something you apply for thousands of pounds for, Um and I, I love the Arts Council. I, I myself have used Arts Council funding a few times, but like that speaks volumes to me that people would have to apply just to have time to write. Yeah. So or, or
0: produce podcasts if they're listening.
1: Oh yeah, no, <laughs> absolutely. And like I say, I, I'm a big advocate for the Arts Council. I think without that, it'd be even worse. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I do think there is a class divide, and I, I also think that the gut instinct reaction is that poetry is not for me. That's what people think. It's the same with theatre and art galleries. It's not for me. Mm. It's not for me. Because you, you grow up at school, poetry is taught in the same way that algebra is, and it leaves it scars you for life. Yeah. So it's partly why what I want to write a poem, but also if, even if you do, it's unbelievably difficult to even remotely... I'm in such a privileged position to be able to do it full time. much as I've worked my ass off I realise how lucky I am
0: so let's get to the final the final part which is uh, writing process I like to sort of ask poets how they approach a poem Uh, and then it's sort of of, it's sort of a selfish thing that I do but I've had a lot of emails going oh you know I listened to this episode and -and so-and-so really helped me write a poem so I think it's a great thing to do so in terms of how you approach a poem when you get an idea something like that do you write do you set dedicated time a day to write or do you write in bursts like on your phone or
1: so I, I'm a, um I have to, I have to at the moment I have to dedicate a day um I can't just find it find an hour here find an hour there um because I'm so busy with work um like it's for me like I've I'm I'm a bit of a workaholic yeah and If I get into a mindset where I'm doing emails and I'm doing social media and I'm updating my website and I'm doing invoicing or whatever, once I'm in that mindset, I can't get out of it.
0: It's a full-time job in itself doing I just can't get out
1: of it. So if I wake up on a Monday morning and I'm I'm at my desk without fail, Every day at nine o'clock, yeah. and I work my ass off till like six or seven, right? I can't then stop and start writing a poem. Right. I just can't do it. So I have to say, right on Wednesday, I'm not doing any work. I'm writing, and I have to almost build up to it so that when Wednesday morning comes, I don't feel guilty. I feel because this is the thing, and I don't know if this is a class thing or what, but I almost feel guilty when I'm writing because I'm not earning money. I'm not doing anything that will bring rent in. Like you know, obviously coronavirus has affected us big time. We're both full time writers. Mm. I almost feel guilty, and I can't focus properly. Whereas if it's like, okay, today's a writing day, so I just. The most important thing for me is to turn my phone off, not look at emails, whatever, put a playlist on that's like some kind of instrumental, like chill hip hop beat of. There's a dance artist called Bonobo who does some amazing stuff and just really immerse myself in it. And like in terms of writing a poem, um, your first draft, right, this is going to sound really pretentious, but when you do your first draft, you're almost explaining it to yourself. Right? Yeah. Um, Because it's this idea that's existing in your head somewhere up in your imagination, and you almost have to pull it down like a a group of balloons and sort of like pop them open and like explain it to yourself, right? But you should never explain a poem too much. So, your first draft, you'll always be explaining it too much. And then the second one, I always try and give myself a challenge. So, say if it's like 330 words, I'll force myself to cut it down to 200. And I just think that that's the only way that I can do it. Now, it's a bit anal to stick to such word limits but I think it's the only way I can get that middle ground so I think that a poem is halfway between what you mean and what the audience interprets like and that's where the magic happens because they'll fill in gaps with their own experiences and they'll fill in gaps with their own interpretations and they might misinterpret what you say in order to get some meaning from it now that sounds I know that sounds really pretentious but I think unless you leave those gaps for them to fill in their own meaning and get their own emotional response it's the magic doesn't happen, and so I feel like forcing myself to cut down from say 450 words to 300 or 180 words to 100 that's for me the most exciting bit, and that's because I'm a bit anal and I like numbers and no, like I'm makes, a bit spreadsheety, a sense, but. Yeah. I can't really. Every poem's different in terms of how I write it, and sometimes it's an idea that floats around in your head for a few days. Sometimes it comes to you straight away. I'm actually, at the, to be honest, for the last few years, I've really struggled to write a standalone poem. I was I wrote two little ducks, which was a defined set of themes, and mm. then I wrote a hurricane in my head, which was a defined set a defined set of themes, and then skint and demoralised album. And now I've been working on a novel for a year. I can only write in in the frame of like a project or a I yeah, like yeah, yeah. i just write a poem for the sake of writing a poem so but either way obviously the golden rule is sure don't tell don't over explain it and trust the fact that people if you like you know i know this is really basic but like focusing on the senses or whatever and like i really love the specifics um sorry i'm waffling a little bit here but for example if somebody writes a poem um And mentions like a specific bar or a specific street or a specific song I absolutely buzz off it I know it sounds weird but if somebody wrote a poem if I read a poem that mentioned like this pub knowing that I'd been to that pub I get a right buzz out of it and I think that's like I think maybe that's because I always love realism but I just think like trust the fact that even if somebody doesn't know that pub or that restaurant even you just giving it a name it's sort of like people will uh, something that Morrissey said now I know that Morrissey's now a far right wanker <laughs> but it's like never underestimate the intelligence of your audience and this is the whole thing like i've said i always love to make it accessible but it's not the same as dumbing it down and trust the fact that with a certain set of references and like something that everyone can relate to but then something really specific there's this sort of like balance between the two where people will be able to get a connection with it yeah um and i think if you over explain it when i re- when i look back at my poems from six seven eight years ago it's far too waffly the sentences are too long there's too much information in there it's far too like convoluted like trust the fact that even if i make a reference that nobody else knows it does play a vital it it can still play a vital role in helping somebody connect with it because it feels real and that even if i if i say like you know uh what was that pub called the blue tavern The blue anchor the blue anchor yeah, right yeah, you yeah. mentioned the blue anchor pub all I'll do is think of a pub in my life that's the same as similar to a yeah, blue anchor yeah, no, and no. apply it to 100% that. Agree. Do you know what I mean? Hundred so percent agree. I have no idea what I've just been saying for the last no, few no, minutes, no, but I hope it made some it's sense. It's been gold,
0: it's been gold. Like okay. there are plenty of poems I read where I've never been to that town. But they, they say something that sounds like a pub, so then you visualize the yeah, yeah, your exactly. local pub yeah. or something. Yeah. Trust and that. I've, I've got plenty of poems you can read with the blue anchor in yeah. if you want <laughs> oh, to. Um, editing process is the other thing I, I like to talk about. Because that's, that's something I personally struggle with. When I get my idea down, I leave it for a bit. I'm getting better at it. Um, I've had some sort of critical feedback from a, a service that the Poetry Society yeah. d- offer. And that's actually really helped me lately. But what would be, if there was one thing, you've, you've written this poem and you come to the editing stage. What is the first thing you would do in terms of your editing process with this poem?
1: Um Good question. So, obviously, I've mentioned the word count thing, which is really, really basic, but surprisingly uh, important. Yeah. But um, sometimes with a poem, you'll have three lines in there that are, you know, effectively say three sentences. I don't mean like one sentence broke up over three lines, you know what I'm saying? And you can say everything you're saying in those three sentences, you can say in one sentence. Yeah. Now this w- links to the word count thing or whatever but just forget about that whatever. I just feel like I always I always feel like the the words I've got to pay an entry fee to be in the poem. Um and like that. and I, I just sort of think like how could I say, like, you don't want to cut it down so much that it's this abstract mess that nobody could possibly cling to. But I always just, and again, I know it links to the word count thing, but it's not just a number thing. It's, I always just think, well, I've said that in that sentence and I've said that in that sentence. If I cut out all that shit and just mention that and that, I, it's like, you know, killing three birds with one yeah, stone yeah, or whatever. Yeah. But I just think sometimes it can be so much more powerful. And also, so, like, I suppose the stuff that I've most crafted is the Calais jungle stuff, just because it was the most sensitive and complex thing to write about. It's letting one image or letting one phrase tell the whole story, so rather than me explain everything. When you come to the editing stage, obviously every poem has like a purpose, every poem has a role, Like every poem has a job to some extent, whether that's nostalgia or whether it's political or whether it's humour or whatever. Um, and you're sort of taking the audience member on a journey and sometimes one line either dictates that journey in terms of like you're upsetting or you're setting up for a fall later on or you're making them laugh or whatever. And it, I suppose I just sort of, I just evaluate like if I cut that line out, would the poem lose anything? But well, you can you still make the connection to... Yeah, yeah like it, if I just, instead of saying that, that and that, if I just say that I actually don't need to say any of the yeah, rest yeah, yeah. and it's trusting no, that, that the audience sense. will fill in the blank. So I guess it's for me, it's just really properly evaluating everything yeah. that's in there. Um sorry, I don't feel that was very useful. But um No they were definitely It's just assessing like what is the actual point of the poem. Like is this are there two poems in here? Is there one poem in here? Is the poem take a different direction? Like why why is that in there? Why is that in there? Yeah. Why is that in there? Everything and I think for me
0: that's that's what it is. I know the answer to this question yeah. because I used to ask it as how do you know when a poem's finished but (laughs) it never is so I've rephrased (laughs) it for this series how do you know when to leave a poem be how do you know when to step back from it or or what's your process not a definitive answer but how good question Charles
1: Bukowski says you should always leave a poem for 18 days don't look at it don't think about it don't read it and then read it which I think is quite good to be fair yeah Um, well it comes back to the whole thing of what you want a poem to achieve and if you do leave it you know three weeks four weeks or whatever and you read it back and it's like has it achieved what i wanted to achieve in yeah. terms of it being like funny sad bleak political or whatever um you
0: can't over edit it and then it just becomes shit i guess it sounds like you're sort of saying come back to it and if it still harbors what you, the emotions you set it out yeah. to have, then yeah
1: did that achieve what i wanted it to achieve then like because you can tinker with it too much and then yeah, it just yeah, becomes yeah. so far from the original poem what you wanted it to it's just an over-edited you know i I think you just have to trust trust that gut instinct like almost like because you've left it for two or three weeks remember what you wanted it to achieve and read and if you do get that response if you do get that feeling because like the biggest problem you can have with writing a poem when you're a bit earlier in your career is you get to a point where you're like that'll do yeah and that's never that's never it yeah basically when every line in there's a banger. (laughs) <laughs> when you think that every line yeah. in there is brilliant uh, every 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 line's brilliant everything's hitting hard and it achieves what he wants to achieve every line in there serves a purpose every word in there serves a purpose the poem, that, that, that's what it is it's just knowing when it's fulfilled its role mm. basically which obviously is obviously very different with every poem and like I am quite anal so like I said with uh, the Void's Tempting Mischief poem that's a sequence of 50 haikus if I'd not done it as a sequence of haikus there's no way I would have been able to write that poem yeah. there's just no way I would have been able to do it W- without that restriction so I do find that form is quite good in terms of thinking about syllables and word counts or whatever but that's just my, the way that my brain works But um,
0: the last question I always ask is and I think you've mentioned it in interviews before just poetry has had a massive resurgence in recent times yeah. why do you think it is especially with young people but why do you think it is still in 2020 people turn to poetry
1: because it's content overload with social media and 24-hour news and articles and whatever, there's so much stuff out there. It's really, really overwhelming. Um, And a poem sort of cuts to the chase, condenses it, and connects with you on a human level, and I think by its very nature encourages a bit of vulnerability, which you don't see in the news. And you do see on social media to an extent, but... I just think that it it condenses and frames an issue in a way that's that one you get that emotional response like you get that kick, mm. and two it's just sometimes now it's not always as an inform a source of information is it a poem can be something completely random it can be something about like you know your mum cooking your favorite meal when you were a kid or whatever like you know it's just but either way, it's just um it's a fact that you can to be fair attention spans are shot to shit as well it's the fact that a poem can be like two or three <laughs> minutes long and you get more from that than you would from a 10,000 word article yeah. um, also the escapism so like I w- absolutely love reading poems by people that I can relate to that I know are like me but similarly I love reading poems by people who are nothing like me at mm-hmm. all and mm-hmm. like the way that a poet frames it and condenses it is a way that you can connect with it even if you don't relate to it yeah. and I just love the power that poetry has to do that like, I just love the way that, like, you can walk in someone else's shoes for a minute and a half, two minutes. Um, and also, t- you know, much as it, uh, it shouldn't always be political, it's like, oh, shit, yeah, I never thought about it like that. That's what poetry is. I never thought about it like that. You know what I mean? Like yeah, yeah, So yeah. I just love the way that it can do that. And like I said, with the content overload and short attention spans and like short characters on tweets and snapchats and instagram you know like your instagram story it's 15 seconds long and all this sort of stuff i just feel like there's so much stuff out there people are obsessed with the phones whatever and poetry is just this like
0: instant hit
1: instant hit and it's a condensed and really refined like a lot of content out there is so throwaway. poetry is like the exact opposite but it's still quite short and it's still that hit so yeah. i guess it straddles the really honed and really crafted but also quite digestible and quite short. It's like it's the perfect combination of the two. It's not a 10,000 word article, but it's not a throwaway Snapchat post. (laughs) It's this like perfect middle ground.
0: Great answer. So for people who want to go and check out Two Little Ducks, and they definitely should, or what you're up to in general, where can they find you?
1: Uh, MattAbbottPoet.com, or MattAbbottPoet on every social media handle, or just Google Matt Abbott.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And uh, all that remains for me to ask you, Bermondsey Pub, Millwall. Quality. It's been all right? Yeah, it's great. Yeah, I got distracted
1: because one of the questions on tenable was about football teams <laughs> and someone said West Ham, so I got distracted. But other than that, quality. I, yeah. see, I see
0: you turn around.
1: And it did. Only, <laughs> it only pissed it down for about five minutes.
0: There we go. So, deep south, not as bad as it's supposed to be. Matt, thank you very much. Mate, it's been, thank it, you. It's been great talking to you. Um, I know some of the subjects been quite heavy in terms of the politics oh it always
1: is with me I'm a virtue signalling tosspot I can't help it and I know (laughs) I waffled at times but I hope that some of it was interesting or useful
0: don't matter mate power the edit you know power the edit (laughs) no thank you for joining me it's been really really fun two minute interview This episode's poetry recital comes from Matt and it's a poem we discussed at some length, a very truthful, very honest piece of poetry from Matt and I'm glad he sent this to me as the recital. This is Void's Tempting Mischief. It's the poem written in 50 haikus that we spoke about that comes from Two Little Ducks.
2: Void's Tempting Mischief. 2005. Labour are war criminals. Blairism is rife. The Live 8 concerts. The riots in Edinburgh. The G8 summit. London is chosen for 2012's Olympics and then the bombings. Chaos ensues as Jean-Charles de Menezes is shot dead by the Met. The threat of terror lingers in the summer air. Sound familiar? I'm 16 years old. Government and politics at Sixth Form College. Devil's advocate, fuelled by rebellion, passionate and proud. I need a strong voice. I need a sense of purpose. I need an outlet. A tumbleweed town, identities abandoned voids, tempting mischief. Quadrophenia, mod targets and union flags and teenage anger. Leeds United games, board draws in Division 2 voids, tempting mischief. £2.20 pints in my old man's shirt and shoes at the railway club. Fred Perry Polo, number one buzz cut and a Harrington jacket. Passionate and proud, but what's there to be proud of? What do I cling to? The union flag flaps on bunting and in boozers and in history books. We all know history is written by the victors in generous ink. Up in Livingston, there's a by-election swing to the SNP. Michael Howard goes and the Tories need a leader. Unknown Cameron wins. Blair loses a vote on the terrorism bill as tensions run high. Six form common room. You either blend or rebel, it is binary. Individuals in the uncertainty, voids, tempting, mischief. It's not like before. Playground humiliation in social quicksand, court controversy, and the limelight will be yours, and it's yours to own. Leeds United games, coach trips around the country, booze, flags and banter, blind, drunk in Rotherham, Frog-marched through Burnley back streets, bedless in Cardiff, eight hours to Plymouth, winter nights topless in crew, blood-soaked in Sheffield and monkey noises as the coach snaked to Millwall, again at Wigan, impressionable and caught up in the wrong crowd, passionate and proud. It starts on forums. Dodgy links like dominoes bring propaganda and as you well know, Propaganda only works when it's in disguise. Eager to believe, you start to delude yourself. It's unstoppable. Ideas excite, common sense is abandoned. You start to feel free. Views claimed as your own instead of what you've been fed by those up above. Intoxicating, that air of rebellion, passionate and proud. An enamel badge lands on the doorstep at home. The BMP Youth. There are no letters, just the logo-based shape of a Union flag. I lie to my folks. I don't admit what it is, because deep down, I know. But I wear it out. Football games, even sixth form, passionate and proud. I align myself with their vitriolic views, voids, tempting, mischief. I am not racist. I am not homophobic. I am not fascist. During the same spell in the sixth form common room, I came out as bi. Blind to irony, enraptured by defiance, desperate and naive. When you feel oppressed, you forget your privilege. It's all relative. I stood toe-to-toe with Holocaust deniers and with hooligans. A young, white, cis male with dinner on the table, a home with a roof. Obsessed with a flag, the power of rejecting all authority. The dam buster's theme, fists raised aloft in drizzle, division unites. And Severa so went. The crossroads of adulthood, careering off course. A kick up the arse and a good old talking to her might be alright. Passionate and proud, destructive and deluded, voids, tempting, mischief.
0: Now, you know that I love to play unpublished poetry as well as those that I chat to. So as it's the last episode of Series 5, we've got an additional recital for you. This comes from Kelly Knight, who kindly sent in her poem, Generation Lost, which appeared in the Bollocks to Brexit anthology. And what better conversation for it to follow than mine and Matt's. So without further ado, this is Generation Lost.
3: Generation Lost. Our Tattooed Hearts, Inc., Bristol, Bristol, filled with Sunday's thinking disco. We pulled free, kicking into the green dreams of believers. We are the underachievers, the high-flying wheelers. Our ideas are bigger than our years that deceive us and we've no discs that dance to Britain's misunderstandings, the money makers or the Tory takers. Why can't they just hold on like we do? Just keep old-fashioned truth until the day we die from each other. We'd make some room, waving our cigarettes at the baby boom. Yes, we chose to stay with each other, wrapped around youth's drunken proof of beginning and loving and starting again till it never ends. Let's take them round the bend to here, where it's fucked and evidently fearlessly clear. Let's buy them a beer. We are... The field warmers, the sub-letters, the hold-my-drink-for-a-minute lecturers. We see our ghosts, know our pasts, we birthed that lost ground and pray that it lasts.
0: A big thank you to Matt for sitting down with me and taking the time to chat. Really honest, eye-opening and thought-provoking conversation, I thought. If you haven't already, head over to Verve Poetry Press. Grab yourself a copy of Two Little Ducks and Selected Poems. You will not be disappointed. I've read it a few times now and every time I'm taken aback at just how good it is. Also available by Matt Abbott, as we said, A Hurricane In My Head by Bloomsbury. I've certainly got a copy and I will be using that with my Key Stage 3 classes in the future thanks also goes out to Kelly Knight who kindly sent in some poetry I've got some more of her poetry and we'll be hearing that in future series so stay tuned for more from Kelly remember if you are a poet and you've got something recorded do send it in we love playing new voices all the time on this podcast and featuring unpublished and published poets doesn't matter what stage you are in your career whether you're just starting out or whether you're looking to get something published or indeed you have something published if you've got a recording send it over people's poetry podcast at homo.com and we'll get it on an episode a massive thank you as always to you at home for listening if you've enjoyed the show please do share it with a friend you can find us on instagram at people's poetry podcast over on twitter at people underscore poetry you can find us on facebook people's poetry podcast i'm on twitter jbo that's jbo pens poems And you can email us if you want to get involved with the show. If you're a poet yourself and you'd like to sit down and chat or social media just don't cut the mustard and you want to get in touch, it's people's podcast at hotmail.com.